This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. Where were you 10 years ago today, February 12th, 2010? Of course, it was the opening ceremonies of the 2010 Olympic Games in Vancouver. Now, looking back, and we're going to go down memory lane today on the show and have a lot of fun uh, looking back at the Olympic Games here. Ten years to the day since the Winter Games opened. As you look back, what would you say was the impact that the Olympic Games had on the city? Would you say it was a positive experience for Vancouver, or would you say negative, or would you say there was really no impact? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the poll today. At CKNW on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there, please. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. Smith spelled with a Y, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line today. Leave me your Olympic memories, okay? 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. And send me a voice, uh, an email too, mike at cknw.com i'm very pleased to welcome to the studio now andrew wilkinson leader of the bc liberal party he's the leader of the official opposition in the legislature thank you very much for coming in thanks for having me mike okay let's talk about the uh the throne speech yesterday and the the turmoil that we saw around the building with the protest what was it like for you yesterday getting into the building here yesterday well i came in about quarter to eight so they had the usual camp on the front steps and in my world that's legitimate democratic protest they would put up a kind of a big tent been there for about five days they had a whole bunch of people sleeping on the stairs on the front of the building that's what about fine. that fire you thought that fire was okay it smelled like smoke in the building i was just about to say the fire is kind of on the edge i mean they <laughs> lit a fire on the stairs the smoke was going in the building you got to think that's kind of crossing the line but yeah. not too exciting but when they brought in a whole flock of a couple of hundred students, the students were pretty courteous. You know, they were shouting shame at everybody who walked by, but that's what you do when you're 19. And sadly, what happened was the real agitators hid amongst the students. And the agitators were the aggressive ones, the ones spitting and swearing. I saw from my own window the ushers here who are commissioners. They're in their 70s. They were being screamed at and spat at as they walked away from the building. I mean, these people do this kind of as a retirement thing. It's not their job to take abuse. Did any of your people get roughed up, any of the staff or MLAs or anything? Or I met with one staffer who twisted her ankle when she was pushed over on her way into the building. Wow. And you can see a criminal investigation. How do you proceed when you've got a milling crowd of 75 people and one of them pushed somebody? You know, how do you investigate and prosecute that? What do you and they think, know what they're doing. This is all planned. What do you think about the way this was handled around the building? Do you think it was mishandled or could have been done better? Well, you know, it's tough being in the policing business these days because everybody's got a video camera pointed at you. So I think the police did what they could. I think there could have been some better advanced planning to make sure that there was a clear corridor for people to get in safely. But, you know, we've got to remember where the focus of the democratic process, so it's legit to come and protest here. I welcome people to camp on the front lawn and make their views known and put up a sign. That's what we're here for. What's not okay 
is yeah. blocking the biggest ambulance corridor in Western Canada in front of Western Canada's busiest hospital. And people are coming in by ambulance and having to be escorted by police motorcycles because they've put a fire in the middle of Cambian Broadway. Yeah. The answer is no. Clear I'm, it out. I'm looking on Twitter at some of the tweets from uh, some of your liberal MLAs on, on this matter yesterday. Jazz Johal, for, uh, in particular, very critical uh, of the government and the way this was handled. So Jazz Johal writes, we all have a right to protest. That, that does not mean threats bullying or assault which is effectively what you just said but then he goes on by staying silent horgan eby and farnworth emboldened this type of behavior this is just disgusting do you ag agree with your mla here that somehow john horgan or his cabinet ministers are responsible for this mayhem here this goes back a long way you know we had Jennifer Rice, who's the MLA for the Prince Rupert area, saying that our legal system's a colonial construct designed to oppress people. I mean, grow up. You're an elected member of the legislature. You're here to make laws. The laws of the land get enforced by the courts, Jennifer. You either want this job or you don't. So make up your mind which side of the fence yeah, you're on. Yeah, but is it really their fault? You know, Hold on, is let it me really Horgan's fault? And then we have their cabinet minister going and making friends with them last year as they're in the midst of causing all this obstruction. And then down here, we have John Horgan reluctantly coming out a month ago and saying, well, gosh, golly, there's a court injunction, got to have the rule of law. And then he disappears. Yesterday, he ran away from the media, didn't want to answer questions in the midst of all this. Where is this guy? Supposedly, he's coming out at noon because he realized he's been humiliated. He's got to show some strength here and show that you cannot go and set up a fire in the middle of Camby and Broadway for 18 hours. That is yeah, not Yeah, but what, acceptable. what is he supposed to do about that? Is he supposed to go down to Camby and Broadway himself and dump the put the fire out? I mean, no, you know, that's a municipal policing obligation. Well, but he's not in charge of telling the police what to Correct. do. The police are independent. Correct. But if you have a premier who's responsible for the rule of law in this province, giving the soft pedal and saying, gee whiz, don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, that creates the opportunity for people to do stupid things. Let me play a clip here for you in from Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, who reacted to some of the liberal criticism uh, of the government on this protest yesterday. So here is Farnworth from yesterday. The, the, uh, the BC Liberals uh, would try and somehow say that these protests are uh, government's responsibility, uh, to me, illustrates just how out of touch uh, and how irrelevant they have become in this province. Uh, the fact that on any other issue that people in this province care about, whether it's ICBC, whether it's housing, whether it's affordability, um, whether it is money laundering, they have nothing substantive to offer because they are responsible for all of those things, but they would try and somehow take an issue of this seriousness and of this nature and play petty uh, political games about is absolutely reprehensible and shows just how irrelevant they are in the political debate of this province right now. Okay, so reacting angrily to some of the criticism directed at the government yesterday. Your thoughts? Well, that's the worst possible defense for doing nothing. Mike Farnworth and John Horgan are saying, gee whiz, this is all out of control, and we got to blame it on the Liberals because, gee, they were in office 16 years ago. I mean, grow up. Well, you guys, are trying, either, to, you guys are trying to blame it on them. Like, they're I, I, either how in can charge you blame, or not, Mike. But how can, you blame it? Have, how can you blame it on the government for some mob of people shows up here no, 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 and no. is spitting on people and, and, and pushing people and acting like total jerks in, in a lot of cases? How is that Horgan's fault? Get out there and say this is not acceptable. 
That's he what the public response. When did he say that? Yesterday. He said nothing yesterday. Yeah. So when's the person in Coquitlam riding the bus to get to UBC going to hear from this government that they want this stuff to stop and they respect the rule of law and there'll be enforcement of the law? When well, are they going to hear that? Well, what are they? So you just want them to make a public statement. I want them to make uh, a public like statement. Like he's already said public statements that he's condemning these type of these this type of stuff. When? When do you say that? He said last, just the other day, earlier this week, not, that people, not about people have, the, people nothing. have the, no, he did not respond yesterday. I'll grant you that. And the media traced him down the hallway and he ran away, yeah. right? He looked a little glum. He I'll, ran I'll, away from you, Mike. Although, let me, let me ask, let me put it, this to you. I think that these protests in a lot of ways are good for Horgan, whether he looked glum or not or ran away from the cameras yesterday or not. Because I think that this is a popular pipeline project. I know you support it too, but so does the government. I think the public generally broadly supports the project. A lot of First Nations and Indigenous people support this pipeline project, despite despite what you hear. And I think Horgan's on the right side of public opinion on this. And when you have a mob like this shows up at the legislature, I think in some ways it makes them look good. It makes them look like a moderate. The traditional rap on the NDP is they're bad for the economy. They're against big resource development projects. Here's one that he's in favor of. Here's this mob that's against it. I think he's on the right side of public opinion on it. Maybe in the long run, but where is he yesterday, today, tomorrow saying, A, I support this pipeline. B, court orders have to be enforced. C, the the efforts here yesterday were wrong. Where has he been on that? When's he ever come out and said those three things together? Okay, let me ask you about some of the other things that Farnworth just brought up in that clip. You bet. So he, he transitioned it and said... You know, the liberals, it's all our fault. Yeah, the liberals are responsible for money laundering, the ICBC dumpster fire, uh, the affordability crisis we've seen in real estate and elsewhere. So that guy's the traditional kind of tactic, I guess, to dump it back on you guys. But do, what is your sense of that? Or, and how can, you, how can you start to sort of overcome that kind of baggage? Because sometimes I talk to people who think that, you know, I, I'm not so, super thrilled about this NDP government, but maybe the liberals still need some more time in the penalty box here. Well, you know, we're having a wholesale renewal with new candidates all over the place. We had five retirements so far. There are more to come. We got new candidates in uh, Maple Ridge Pit Meadows and in Abbotsford South. There's another one coming in Port Moody Coquitlam. A lot of renewal going on. That's number one. Number two, David Eby decides to trot out yesterday that there's been a conviction for money laundering in Las Vegas. Well, whoop de doo What's he done about prosecuting anybody? Absolutely zero. There are no prosecutions underway in British Columbia for money laundering. This is the guy who has all their names, addresses, and phone numbers from all the houses he said are unlawfully owned. All the guys who came in with the bags of money and registered their driver's license with BCLC. Prosecute them, David. They did it in Las Vegas. What's wrong with you? Okay. It's the liberals' fault that David Eby doesn't nothing. Okay, let me ask you about, you just mentioned some of the new candidates that you've got coming you up for the liberals. So you guys are in kind of pre-election mode, you bet. right? Even though the next scheduled election is not until well over a year from now, October 2021. Do you still anticipate or you're getting ready just in case there's a snap election early? Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's an unstable situation here. We've got 42 seats. They've got 41. The Greens have two, so that's 43 to 42. Andrew Weaver's uh, resigned from the Green Party. is sitting as an independent. I gather his family has some health issues, and legitimately he may be saying he's had enough of this. So we got to be ready anytime. And we right. will be ready, and we're going to have a whole slate of nominations this year to make sure we're ready. What about some of the... Uh the older kind of MLAs who've been around for a long time, who may be in the public's mind emblematic of kind of the, the bad old days of the government when the liberals started to get unpopular. And I'm talking specifically about people like Rich Coleman, Mike DeYoung, Shirley Bond. 
would you like, I, I don't expect you to kind of criticize your own people, but would you like to see some renewal and have these have these people step aside? I think they've passed their best before date, haven't they? Well, I said earlier, we've had five people announce they're not running in the last six months. There are more to come. And yeah, so, but what, you, what about those three MLAs I well, just mentioned? I work with them, discuss their future on a regular basis. Each year I sit down with their MLAs and say, they all running again? Is there an, if there's an election this year, are you running again? I haven't had those conversations yet. So that will okay. be coming up in the near future. And some of the folks you've mentioned may come to their own conclusions. Okay. But one step at a time. You know, there's a lot of renewal going on. We have a lot of interesting ideas. I'm an entirely new leader here. We're going to have a very strong environmental message because I'm the old president of the BC Mountaineering Club. I'm from the interior. I am very respectful of our landscape and our wildlife. We'll be talking a lot more about that. We're going to be talking about a wholesale new okay. approach to housing and transit to make sure that people can actually afford to get by. Because, Mike, there's one question that I ask everybody. Are we going to be the first generation to watch people under 35 have their standard of living go down? Because that's what's happening right now. There are all kinds of people out there who see their goals just Okay. vaporizing in front of their noses. Their dreams are failing. We've got to do better than this, and it's failing under the NDP. Let's go right to your calls. Philip in Vancouver, hi. Oh, good morning, Mike. I, yeah. A comment I have is that, you know, we have a 1,000 or more police officers in Vancouver. Why couldn't they just go in and clear out that intersection? If you'll remember, many years ago, we had a, a peaceful demonstration in Gastown, and they sent out horses and everything to do it. And I'm quite sure that if I sat in a chair in the middle of Broadway and Camby, I'd be removed in no time. Yeah. Let's get on this and clear them out and maybe okay. get our prime minister back to look after this natural, national disaster we have going right now. Okay, thank, thank you for the call. Well, I think they're showing great restraint, to say the least, and they don't want to make the situation worse. But do you think the police should be moving in? Well, it's interesting that certain police forces take certain approaches. Vancouver police take the view that... We're never not going to get too fussed about inconvenience or property crime, but they'll prevent violent crime. They do a good job of that. The amount of violent crime in Vancouver is actually fairly low. But when protesters like those bicycle guys from Hub a couple of years ago used to say, oh, this Friday we're going to be screwing you around in downtown Vancouver by riding around You mean the, criti the critical mass group yeah, that yeah. used to clog the streets with cyclists? Yeah. And the police tolerate them because it's transient. They've given you some notice. You can arrange your, give yourself an extra hour if you've got to get yeah. to the airport or get home for your kids' There's no, There's game. been no warning with these blockades, yeah, really. These things are totally different. Yeah. There's also the random marches downtown banging drums and stuff, which last for about an hour and go down different streets. You can make your way around them with a tr bit of traffic warning. This one yesterday was a strategic blockade of the biggest ambulance route in Western Canada and the biggest transit route in Western Canada, and it went on for, what, 14 hours? Mm. That is not acceptable. We have to have reasonable limits on this uh, public expression So you think stuff. the police should have moved in and cleared the most side? I think that Canby Corridor, you know, at Broadway needs to be kept clear. And they could have done some more containment work. I'm not a police officer. I'm not the mayor of Vancouver. But I was deeply disappointed in how they handled it. Let's go to Eddie in Surrey. Hi, Eddie. Eddie. Hello, uh, hello, hi Mr. There. Wilkinson. I just, hi. I just wanted to ask you what's being done about the uh, the Fraser River cave-in up. I think it was Big Bar. Is uh, the government not going to do anything about that? Because that's basically a huge catastrophe. 
Yeah, I was up in Prince George two weeks ago at a fish hatchery, and they had the most recent info, which is it's taken quite a long time to get the contract sorted out, but capable contractors have been engaged to go down and blow up the rocks and find a way to either remove them or level it out so that it's a, a gradient that fish can get across. The actual passage last year was terrible. The helicopter transfers were a failure. It did not work out very well. So they're very, very concerned about it, but it is apparently all federal and DFOs doing it, and we sure hope they get it right. Randy and Burnaby, hi. Yeah, I think Andrew has a point. Uh, Horgan needs to come out and show some leadership. These are He's got to come and call off the NDP dogs, because that's who these activists are. They're all NDPers collecting government checks, and on, on how that do you know? Side, how do you know that? Come on. Oh, come on. And the sweet irony of Lana Popham being blocked by a feather uh, to get into the legislature. She would have been out. If the BC Liberals were in power, she would have been out there with the activists, with a bullhorn. And uh, <laughs> this has got to stop. Enough's enough. NDP's got to call off their dog. Well, look, you know, I'll tell you who controls the legislature precinct officially. It's not Horgan. It's not the NDP. It's supposed to be the speaker. Guy yeah. named Daryl Pleckis, and last time he checked, he was a former liberal MLA. Well, uh, before come on. you guys kicked him He's out of the Liberal hard, Party, kicked him what? out. He left in a cloud of dishonor to go and sit as an independent because he wanted to be the. Well, NDP what do you speaker. think? What do you think of his performance on on these protests? Do you think they should have had a? He should have had a better plan. Maybe some fencing to protect the entrance. Yeah, there probably something? should have been a better plan because these. Uh, Agitators, not the protesters, mostly students, they're just doing their democratic work, but the agitators are going around the night before the clipboard taking notice of all the entrances. They should yes. have had advance warning to keep an entrance clear. But coming back to your speaker's point there, the caller's yes. point, Mike, when's the last time that John Horgan came on an open line radio program in CKNW? I don't recall, but I will say that we did ask him to come on today and he was not available. Yeah, how convenient. Okay, because I, I knew people were going to say, oh, you're putting Wilkinson on for half an hour and giving him free publicity. We did ask for Horgan. Hey, uh, we'll you don't come to this voluntarily. You only come when Mike Smith forces you to answer every question he's got in mind. <laughs> One more question and squeeze it in fast. Ed in Surrey. Uh, yeah, I just caught your comment there where you uh, made a comment that liberals should be in the penalty box a little bit longer. I totally concur. And I, can you refresh my memory? Wasn't it on the ICBC back in maybe 2009, 2010, where they had a fire of about 200 uh, executives that they didn't need that uh, seemed to accumulate okay, really, under we, the uh, Gordon I'm, I'm Campbell only, I'm regime? Only, I'm only stepping on you because we only have 30 seconds left, but ICBC, you continue to take heat on that. Yeah, the NDP created this thing 45 years ago. It was supposed to take the profits away from the evil insurance companies and give it to the people. That's what the BC Liberals did the, once that the ICBC turned a profit. Now it's losing money hand over fist. Guess who pays? You, the taxpayer, because the NDP okay. have mismanaged it. And Thank now you. they say they're going to give you 400 bucks back, just like they gave you 400 bucks back as a renter. Don't believe it. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Mike. That is Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the BC Liberal Party. He had lots of calls there. If you didn't get through, phone the buzz line, 604-331-2899. Saw the mayhem yesterday at the BC legislature with protesters surrounding the building. Meanwhile, overnight, we saw a blockade in Vancouver by pipeline opponents. More blockades to come probably in the days ahead. If you take a look on Facebook, uh, there's a group on there planning another shutdown of the B.C. legislature in the days ahead. So, you know, probably maybe just getting started here with these uh, blockades and protests here over this project. Let's talk about the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline now. And I got both sides of it for you. We got our panel assembled on the line. I got Peter McCartney. He's a, cl a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. He's opposed to the Coastal Gas Link Project. Peter, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Also on the line is Stuart Muir. He's the executive director of Resource Works, and he supports the pipeline. Stuart, welcome back. Hi, Mike. Hi, Peter. Thank you guys, both of you, for doing this. Peter, let me go to you first. When you saw the protests yesterday at the B.C. legislature, as a guy who opposes the pipeline, I mean, do you condone these type of tactics surrounding the legislature? Do you think that's a smart thing to do? I do, you know, and I think that there were four out of six stories on the front page of the Golden Mill this morning about this pipeline. And so yeah. uh, I think the protests are having a huge effect. And, um, you know, we had lots of lots of friends on the ground there in Victoria. So it was an inspiring day. Don't you think they, I don't know, I, I think maybe they just do do themselves more harm than good. I mean, all you're doing is angering people, aren't they? You know, I think there hasn't been a social movement ever who has achieved real change without disrupting the lives of people. You know, it's unfortunate. Um, but, you know, when we protest in front of ferry terminals, they say, well, why aren't you targeting the legislature? When we target the legislature, they say, oh, well, you know, now you're interrupting uh, MLA's business. And it, it, we see this again and again. And uh, in, in years to come, people will realize that, you know, this is a really crucial and important right. fight. Okay, well, certainly the blockades have, have put the project in the in the public eye and a lot of media coverage of it. Stuart, what do you think? Yeah, well, we'll see what the public thinks. Uh, I mean, the amount of inconvenience, the lack of respect for individuals and the desire to do physical harm to people, um, I don't know how that goes over with the average person who's drudging away uh, their job, paying their taxes, uh, getting to work, getting the kids to school, and then there's someone on the bridge that can't go through that. Uh, why to stop a project that is providing a cleaner form of energy to part of the world that almost desperately needs to lower their greenhouse gas emissions over in Asia. They, they want this. They want it done safely. They think Canada is a more desirable and get it from Qatar and Russia. They'd like to do it with a country that has, last time I checked, the rule of law still in place, uh, knock on wood. Um, and, and so uh, there seems to be this idea, what is it, uh, we need to get to some perfect state and there's no acceptable pathway of you know doing the best we can do with the things yeah. available to us so i guess it's idealism and uh, you know i remember uh, going on a protest in my university days i can i can i can understand the impulse but in this case you know it's uh it's really a climate protest that is actually an anti-climate protest it's a it's a, a protest about indigenous issues that's actually against the welfare of indigenous people so the whole thing is like topsy-turvy it's like mike it's like alice in wonderland here everything is the, the, through the looking glass, okay, Peter, and it's all Peter, upside down. Peter, what do you say to that? I mean, it's amazing to watch the spin that, you know, pro-industry PR people put on the, on this. It is true that when gas burns, it has less of a carbon uh, pollution creation than coal. But by the time you frack for the stuff in northeast BC, um, put it through leaky infrastructure to a liquefaction plant where they have to burn it for power, to cool the gas down to negative 162 degrees and then ship it across the ocean. You know, any benefit that you'd see is, is lost in that conversation. So um, even if that was the case, we could convert every single coal power plant in the world to gas and we would still be, uh, the electricity sector would still be emitting five times more than we can have for a safe climate. We would still be driving the majority of species on Earth to extinction and uh, putting hundreds of millions of people into poverty. Um, so, you know, the idea that this uh, fossil fuel that they're trying to export is somehow going to be good for the climate is just, uh, it's absurd. And, and it's a, you know, a communications point more than anything that started with the Christie yeah. Clark government and uh, hasn't yeah. been able to die. Okay, but, I mean, if you don't export them the natural gas, aren't they just going to keep burning coal? Isn't that worse? 
it's not worse. That's what we're saying is when you take the life cycle emissions, so when it's all said and done, the gas here in Canada and uh, what it takes to get it over to Asian markets, you know, it's, it's marginal at best, depending how you, you know, look at it, and worse under some uh, Stuart, circumstances. Stuart. You know, we, we look at the studies you're citing there, Peter, and I'm, I'm afraid they're out of date. It's a hodgepodge of misinformation that you're peddling. No one believes it. You know, you think these nations across the Pacific are just a bunch of idiots who can't do the math, who don't take seriously their uh, signatures on the Paris Accord on Climate, that they're just a bunch of idiots? They're not. They have very carefully done this. They've sourced the best gas in the world. They're doing it in the most responsible way they can. And there's just they're getting no respect or even acknowledgement. And we have this sort of, of, of uh, you know, factory of, of spy mis- of, of of spin and misinformation right. coming from you where where the literature you're citing is from Oklahoma. It's dated. It has just no relevance to the BC okay, Peter, situation Peter, whatsoever. You, Peter, what do you say to that? The literature we're citing is from British Columbia and it's very conservative in the amount of methane that has been leaking into the atmosphere. As far as countries in Asia, of course they want to lower their carbon first, but, and there's no, uh, no, no doubt that burning gas instead of coal would, but it drives our carbon footprint up to discount for it. And so I don't see how these LNG companies, you know, we mentioned the Paris Agreement. They're trying to get credit for reducing emissions somewhere else um, because we're cr- uh, increasing emissions to do it here. Um, you know, that even the Minister of the Environment, you know, anyone who's really taken a credible look at this knows that those numbers don't add up. Peter, what's the point you, of yeah. having the clean BC? If I might just, what's the point of having the clean BC plan? Industry in BC has bought into it. The government in Victoria worked with industry and the environmental groups to come up with goals. Uh, everyone signed off on it. Uh, Peter, maybe not your group, but other responsible groups that are recognized in the environmental space stood on the stage with the minister, with industry, and said, we've agreed to this. That was two years ago. Um, I personally thought some things were a little far, but hey, um, they, they, they have a pact. So why aren't we respecting that, recognizing that the work has been done? The methane escape is a real issue. That's been resolved. Yeah. And Peter. There's, there's so much progress. There has, not been, there is, there has not been resolved. Um, there yeah. is an LNG-sized hole in the Clean BC plan, and there's lots of good stuff in that plan. But while we're all working to reduce emissions here in Vancouver, uh, the liquefied natural gas industry wants to increase emissions. The Clean BC plan only takes into account the first half of LNG Canada. Uh, and there's no mechanism for the government to try and yeah. um, prevent the next half from being built, which would absolutely sink our provincial climate targets. This, like, hey, it's cut and dry here hey, that Peter. we cannot build this brand new fossil fuel industry at a time we're trying to reduce emissions. Hey, Peter, let me ask you this real quickly, and then we'll take a break and, and we'll take some phone calls as well. But w- when we take a look at the sort of the indigenous aspect of this project and the indigenous opposition from the hereditary chiefs of this Wet'suwet'en First Nation, when you take a look at how many First Nations are actually supporting this project, all 20 of them through their elected band councils along this pipeline corridor, and then you take a, a deeper dive into the economic spinoff that it's being created for First Nations, many of them impoverished, many of them living in remote communities that have seen other, other oppor- business opportunities dry up and go away. It just seems to me this is like a lifeline for a lot of these communities that are getting jobs, work, and investment and income out of this project. What do you say to them? I mean, what do you say to these First Nations who are looking at this project as kind of a beacon of hope, and you're standing up there and saying, telling them to shut it down? Well, you know, they think the thing about human rights is that they apply whether or not uh, a, a community's decision is popular. 
Um, there are certainly First Nations who support this project across northern BC, uh, but the Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary leadership, which has rights uh, that have existed for millennia and been recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada, has said no. And so, you know, for, for other communities, and, you know, it's uh, they're looking at this as... Um, as something that could bring economic prosperity, uh, but the Wet'suwet'en so, have clearly said no. And and well, they, you've got, you know, you've a got lot of the five... money that is coming through these benefit agreements yeah. is actually coming from the provincial government. And we should be funding uh, infrastructure projects in First Nations communities, but you know we shouldn't make that contingent on their support. Yeah, but the provincial got, government's agenda. But you got five hereditary chiefs are saying no to the project, and then you've got twenty elected band councils from First Nations who represent thirteen thousand Indigenous people. So how come you have five hereditary chiefs overruling? Uh, 13,000 Indigenous people who are looking at this project as, as a way out of poverty. Because that's how human rights work, and the B.C. Human Rights Commissioner was very clear on this. You, you cannot... Um, it, it, this oh, isn't geez. majority rule. It's, it's yeah. five, these yeah. five hereditary you know, chiefs have rights rule. that have been recognized wow. by the Supreme Court, and, and you need to get everybody on side. That's how consent works. Okay. And, um, and you cannot just bulldoze through a community when uh, when they clearly have said no okay. to this project. Scott in Maple Ridge, hi. Yeah, number one, we're always going to have a higher carbon footprint in Canada. We have a winter and we're in the northern hemisphere. Number two, the hereditary chiefs are kings. Queen Elizabeth is a hereditary chief. The age of kings and monarchy wielding real power is over. We're now democratic in the Western Hemisphere and Western society. So it's really, it's really uh, convenient for you guys to latch on to these kings because they agree with you. Peter, Peter McCartney, what do you, Peter, what do you say to that? Well, you know, I, I certainly don't think it's for anyone on this call to decide who represents the what and so what and people. They have to do that themselves. But that has been prevented by the imposition of the Indian Act for 150 years in this country. And, and you know, they need that space to be able to rebuild um, and decide a, a governance structure that works for the members of the community. Um, there's a governance system that has existed for thousands of years uh, that currently is making decisions and, and has authority. And, um, you know, but that space can't be possible while they're currently having a, a pipeline run through their territory which is creating all sorts of division. Stuart, what do you say to that? Yeah, it's a pretty opportunistic use and I think abuse of the Indigenous people I've been talking to here in the Bulkley Valley. I'm, I'm in Smithers today. The, the hardship, the hurt, the people being literally burned out of their homes, threatened with violence. Uh, they call it lateral violence when people around you, people you know, are hurting each other. Uh, that's what's happening. I was looking at the criminal court docket in, in Smithers. I was down there. And the number of individuals on assault charges from Morristown, the, the Witsit community, where so many of the Wet'suwet'en live, um, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I was interviewing a, uh, a person today who, whose family has been subject to threats and, and violence. Uh, who's been, Why? His own family has been part. Why have they been threatened? Their, oh, because they think that having uh, jobs in their community, having uh, a future uh, potential for their children and grandchildren, to be able to stay in the community, to keep the language and culture alive, which is so, so important in this 10,000-year-old culture here, and 
and they're being stopped by a an artfully manipulated and Peter's group is part of this. They're they're I mean it's right out of uh, uh, you know it's it's a bizarre situation that's been created here, um, exploiting the real issues. I mean there are real issues here. I'm not saying otherwise. I agree okay. with Peter on that. Um, in order to create the appearance of indigenous uh, resistance or or, uh, you know, opposition to something. Sure, there's, people have a whole spectrum of different views in broad Canadian society and in any First Nation. That's life. Uh, but to characterize and seize on to uh, some of these uh, often contentious uh, legal issues, jurisprudence issues, and claim, make these claims, set up this stage show of, of uh, these fantastic d- displays and, and uh, woe is us and the um, the, the spectacle with the RCMP on a forestry road, that's all made for the modern media age. It's all a manufactured uh, product, okay. which is meant to sway public opinion. I know, Peter, I know you're probably dying to respond to that. Let me just squeeze another call in here. Tim in Surrey, hi. Oh, hey, Mike. Interesting conversation. Very quickly, everybody keeps talking about the law and the order, rule of law. So if that is the case and people don't like civil disobedience and whatever, understandably, because it's inconvenience, does the 1997 court case decision that included the hereditary chiefs, is this what everybody is waiting for, for the appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada to see whether that 97 decision has any bearing on this particular route? And I understand all the hereditary chiefs are meeting today. Thanks, guys. Peter McCartney, can you comment on that? Uh, I can. I I first just want to respond to the idea that somehow this is the environmental movement manipulating things. You know, if you if you think this is environmental groups that are going in and, and, and controlling this yeah, uh, you don't understand the first thing about this we are we are taking our leads from the people on the ground in what to Stuart, 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 let him let him Stuart, Stuart, hang okay. on Stuart, let him let him finish go ahead peter we, the unistoten camp has been there for a decade they were opposing oil and gas program uh, pipelines before Many environmental groups got on side with that fight. Um, this has been led by them from the start, and they're very careful to uh, to make sure that their authority is respected. And, and we've done a ton of work uh, to build relationships and build trust to be able yes, to work yes, with them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, across the country, Indigenous communities are coming out here as, as if we're controlling that somehow, as absurd. Um, in, according to the Delgamut decision, um, absolutely applies in this case. And what the yeah. Delgamut decision said was that the provincial and federal governments needed to go back and figure this out. This should have been solved 20 years ago. We should never have been having this fight because the rights and title that hereditary governance systems have... Right. We're recognizing that decision, yeah. and that okay. never Bill did the work. It's Bill Forty One, okay. and under- okay, sorry, sorry, Stuart, I got working towards that good outcome. Gentlemen, I got to I got to right. step in there. The time flies by. I would love to have you both back because we there's a ton of calls we didn't get to. I want to thank you both for having a good, vigorous, respectful conversation. Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee, Stuart Muir from Resource Work. It's a special day to look back at Vancouver's Olympic Games in 2010. It was 10 years ago to the day that the opening ceremonies for the Olympic Games were held. February 12, 2010, launching the very memorable Olympic Games for Vancouver and Whistler. We're going to be taking a little trip down memory lane throughout the show here as we look back at the Olympic Games uh, 10 years ago today. Let's check in now with George Orr, the veteran broadcast journalist and documentary filmmaker who has made a documentary about 
the uh, Vancouver Olympics called Chasing the Dream, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hiya, George. How are you this morning, Mike? I'm great. Thanks a lot for doing this. Where Where were you 10 years ago today? Ten years ago, six o'clock this morning, I was standing on the overpass at the south end of the Lionsgate Bridge, uh, shooting with camera, the torch coming over the bridge and into the city. And uh, I stood out there for an hour and a half waiting for the torch. I was frozen. Um, <laughs> a lot of my production work was meant standing around being frozen and bored and stuff. But I ended up uh, uh, shooting the torch coming to town, and then I shot the uh, the people outside the dome who thought that they could somehow disrupt the games who failed at that. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Well, it was a busy day for me. Yeah, busy yeah. day. There were the protests going on. There was a lot of excitement about the opening ceremonies as well. I remember the uh, Wayne Gretzky uh, coming in with the with the uh, torch as the final relay runner, and I believe it was raining. Right? Wasn't it raining that oh, night? Oh yeah. It was it was driving rain. It was just miserable. I got yeah. stuck in traffic, and uh, that's when they started tying up the city with security. And uh, so traffic was awful. It was pouring rain. It was hard to see how it could be as much fun as it turned out to be. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think they did a good job in the opening ceremonies. That's what I recall from from ten years ago. Uh, Katie Lang, I remember being a, a very memorable performance by her. And I think it went off pretty much without a hitch, although there was that little um, equipment malfunction at the end, right? There was, and uh, I think that was most a most Canadian part of it because it didn't quite work. But oh well, you know we're Canadians <laughs> and we're sorry, but but you got to love us, and I think uh, I think that's what the world got to take away is we're Canadians. Yeah. And you have to love us. Yeah, I remember the cauldron was supposed to sort of rise up out of the floor, and it, there was just a little bit of uh, dysfunction there with the uh, the rise. So I remember there was this kind of pregnant pause as we were all waiting for this thing to happen, and they finally did get it going. A very memorable day, George. Tell me about your documentary. I know you've worked a long time on it. So for me, the story starts just after 9-11, which is what, almost 20 years ago now. Uh, Vancouver businessman Jack Poole is having lunch with his good friend and golfing buddy Paul Manning, uh, sort of a political fixer. And over lunch, the two of them talk about, wouldn't it be interesting if we, if we brought some sort of enthusiasm and passion and fun to the coast? The world was starting to look kind of dark after 9-11. So over their lunch, they discussed what it would be like if, if we were to have the Olympics. And uh, that wasn't the only genesis of the Games. But for my storytelling purposes, that's where, that's where it starts. Yeah, Jack Poole. I mean, people will, of course, remember him as as a very high profile uh, businessman who was the head of the Van Ock bid committee back when the games was just an idea. He sadly, passed away before before the games began. Right? He did, and uh, yeah. Jack was, uh, I would say, media averse. That's probably the nicest way to put it. Uh, he didn't see any value in him talking about the process or him being in front of the process. So he he deferred entirely to uh, John Furlong, whom he hired was also a little bit media averse and because i wasn't working for anybody i'm an independent filmmaker uh i could not get accreditation with him i could not get an interview with him it took me four years before jack would sit down and and talk on camera at the point at which he did he had pancreatic cancer and was quite ill uh, but he opened up his heart and uh so my story is really about uh jack's passion to bring the games to canada uh, John Furlong's interest in uh, in picking up the torch and uh, Gordon Campbell's political uh, uh, fence mending and games building. So it's really my story is about the people that brought the games. Right, I think that's very cool. What are your memory your memories of Jack Poole when you finally did get that interview with him? Uh, we sat down at his office. He had a big smile and he said, uh, "I said, do, do, do you want a list of questions?" And he said, "Oh no, <laughs> ask me anything." 
So he talked about growing up on the prairies, uh, a terrible accident that kept him out of athletics, uh, getting into the, the building business, moving to Vancouver, falling in love with the city, and, and ultimately wanting to give back. And when I listened to him talk, I thought, this is off the Chamber of Commerce, but I realized this is actually him. He was, uh, he'd made his fortune, he'd, he'd made his mark, and he did want to do something uh, to make the place a better place. So for him, it was bringing the Olympics. Lovely guy. Yeah, very nice, man. Speaking to documentary filmmaker George Orr, 10 years to the day after the opening ceremonies of the 2010 Olympic Games in Vancouver, and his documentary is called Chasing the Dream. And like you mentioned, George, focusing on the people who are sort of central to that bid, uh, you mentioned uh, Jack Poole. What about, um, where did uh, Glenn Clark come in there? Wasn't it, it was an NDP government at the time, wasn't it? Didn't Glenn Clark get on board, the NDP premier there? Well, the, the the political genesis of the games was Ian Waddell, who was in Glenn Clark's cabinet. Oh yeah, and uh, Ian had uh, had this idea. Politi- he'd heard about the notion, and he sort of carried it forward politically. Uh, and then, the, of course, the, uh, the New Democrats uh, slipped from power, and the Liberals uh, slipped in. So it became Gordon Campbell's games, and uh, he was not shy about uh, touting the benefits of the games. It was going to double tourism was going to create great wealth. It was going to make the world see us for what we are. And you'll remember the slogan, the best place on earth, because that's yes. what we decided we would be called. So the political end of it was very much a, uh, a business and tourism promotion exercise. Yeah, the Campbell government uh, went all in on it for sure. And he, he was a very enthusiastic supporter uh, of the games. You mentioned also John Furlong, who was brought in as the guy to manage the bid and then was kept on as, as the guy who ran the the whole uh, organizing committee as well, right? What are your thoughts on him? Well, Furlong uh, sat down to be interviewed by Poole for the exact position at the Games, and at the end of the conversation, they talked for a while in, uh, in Poole's office, and at the end of the conversation, Poole looked at Furlong and said, if you don't take this job, I'm not going to go ahead with the Games. It stops here unless <laughs> you take the job. Wow. So Furlong took the job, walked out, and tells me on camera, he walked out of Poole's office, stood on the sidewalk and thought, what the hell am I going to do now? Uh, and then from that day forward, he was he was the face of the games. Uh, it took, like, because I was not somebody they wanted to deal with, they couldn't manage my message. It took a long time for him to trust me enough to sit down. We had three long on-camera conversations, one a couple of years out, uh, one two days before the game started. I spent the day shadowing him with the camera, and then a couple of weeks afterwards. So he opened his heart. Uh, he could have been whatever he chose to be, uh, in the wake of the games because of the good feeling the games engendered. Uh, it's too bad that he's not. Looking back at the opening ceremonies 10 years ago today, George, uh, another memory that a lot of people will have w- would be the the death of that um, Nodar Kumar Ishtabili, and I'm butchering his name there, who was yeah. killed on a training run in Whistler on the... Uh, the luge run there on the very day of the opening ceremonies. I, I remember that cast, cast a pall that day, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that's something that sort of still kind of haunts people. I think very much. I mean, they designed the speed, the, the, what do you call it? the luge track was designed to yeah. be as fast as could be. And uh, clearly it's like Formula One racing. At some point you go too fast, and at some point... Uh, so I, you know, the designers of the thing thought, well, let's just make it as fast as we can. And ultimately, this this poor young guy died uh, instantly and very graphically. And uh, yeah, right, it really did cast a pall over the games. It sort of it grounded these people because they were trying to make it all this charming, lovely public relations, aren't we grand exercise. 
and uh, it sort of brought a horrible smack of the real world to the games. That uh, it really tarnished the games to some degree, but it, it didn't really uh, didn't interrupt the games themselves. No, they recovered from it, and I I think largely the leadership of John Furlong there. I recall very vividly how he actually went back to Georgia in the sort of the Balkans region where this young athlete was from, attended his funeral and was actually a pallbearer at at the funeral for this young man. He took it like Furlong took that really personally. And I remember just being really impressed about how he handled it. Well, I'm like you, I've, I've sort of, you know, kicked, I've chased ambulances and fire trucks long enough. I'm pretty cynical about everybody's motivation uh, to start, but you have to give people, you know, an opportunity to find their truth. John Furlong to me was as good as you get. Uh, he was actually he was actually the Boy Scout that he appeared to be. He actually seemed to genuinely have his heart in this, and he was uh, uh, he realized it was an opportunity of a lifetime for him, and he wanted to do the best. So I uh, I hold him in really high regard from all this, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just sorry that he sort of disappeared from public view because, like I say, he could be uh, he could have been our next Governor General. Ten years ago today, George, it was the opening ceremony for the Olympic Games, and it started that uh, the whole party that went on for uh, the days that followed. Uh, when you look back on it now, I mean, one of the things I think is interesting about your documentary, you sort of do kind of a warts and all kind of picture here of, of this event. You didn't, including the controversy and the protests that yep. uh, that were going on. What were, what were the main complaints back then of the people who were fighting the, against the Olympic Games? We're going to take a lot of public money and we're going to put it into a circus, a, a, yeah. an adventure. Uh, and the thought was, why don't we take a lot of public money and put it into housing? And so Homes Not Games was a chant uh, on the streets with uh, a lot of, of mostly young folks, of activists in the city. Uh, they rose up. They made their voices known. They uh, There was a lot of civil disobedience and unrest, and ultimately they weren't successful, but, uh, but they were heard. I also spent 40 days in... Uh, in West Vancouver, there were folks out there in Canada's richest suburb who didn't want the highway going through a particularly environmentally sensitive area. So uh, they stopped construction for 40 days, and I was there the day the police came in and arrested them all. So there were a lot of different folks who saw the games as, as a distraction from what we really needed to do, and ultimately uh, the games were pulled off. I think, would you say, when you look back on it now, would you say that the games were largely successful and a good thing for the city of Vancouver? You know, I, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I think one of the real benefits of the games was the inclusion of First Nations. Uh, Jack Poole was, had First Nations heritage, uh, and he thought that it was crucial that the First Nations in BC be brought into the fold. It wasn't just a, wasn't just a show. Uh, it, he thought that they, through this, through the games, that culture and the settler culture could be integrated to a large degree. And uh, that was a great passion of his. And so I think the benefit from that is that we now see First Nations art, culture, and history in, in somewhat of a different light and a better light. So to me, that was one of the big benefits of the games. Any other, any other sort of memories that stand out for you as you look back over the whole experience of the Olympic Games 10 years ago? Anything sort of jump out at you as a memory in your mind? Um, <clears throat> they just they wanted it to be seen as an entirely positive event. And I think they would have had more success if they told the truth about stuff. I was at a news conference. You might have been there when there was a young skier who uh, who fainted. And uh, rather than admitting that, you know, the scripted story of the day was going to happen, they could have acknowledged the fact that this poor kid was lying on the floor out cold, but they just ignored her because they wanted to control the story all the way through. 
I think if there was any drawback to the games, it was that notion that the IOC had told them, you run your communications like a, like a steel ship. Nothing happens unless you tell it, unless you authorize it to happen. So I think to me, that was, that was the interesting takeaway was they wanted it to be a certain way. Uh, ultimately they, they won, but you know, they could have been a lot more authentic and I think a lot more inclusive. The film is called Chasing the Dream. You've worked a long time on it, George. Where can people see it? Chasing the Dream is on Czech TV tomorrow night uh, at 8 o'clock. None of the major networks would touch this with a barge pole. Uh, The Olympic uh, CTV were the Olympic host network, and they wouldn't touch it because they were concerned it might not be positive. CBC were not, and were concerned about copyright and uh, being sued for saying the word Olympics. And so um, ultimately it's just been a theatrical showing up until now. But Czech TV tomorrow night at 8. George, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Okay, thank you. That is George Orr, the veteran broadcast journalist and documentary filmmaker. And as you heard him say there, his documentary on the 2010 Olympic Games, Chasing the Dreams, on tomorrow night on Czech TV. Ten years ago today, what do you remember of that day? Of course, it was the opening of the Vancouver Olympic Games, February 12th, 2010. That was the date of the opening ceremonies. I remember how it was just pouring down rain that night. Wayne Gretzky was the final torchbearer to come into the stadium there. Do you remember him on the back of that pickup truck with the rain just pouring down? Yeah, it was a pretty wet night that night, but it was a warm, dry feeling inside. And the opening ceremonies were pretty cool, except for that little malfunction they had at the end with the cauldron failing to rise when it was supposed to rise. But a little bit of dysfunction, but they finally got it together. And very memorable day for a lot of people. And on a day like this, 10 years to the day after the Olympic Games started in the city of Vancouver, taking a look back at the entire experience of the Olympic Games for our city, were they good or bad for Vancouver? Well, let's check in now with pollster Mario Canseco, who's done a really interesting survey on this. He's the president of Research Co. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Mario. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. Okay, let's start first of all with people's memories of the of the Olympic Games and whether they think it was worth it. Uh, there was a lot of controversy leading up to the olympics i remember covering a lot of it kind of the exploding costs and budget overruns and disputes about whether it was a misplaced priority maybe they should spend billions of dollars in housing instead of the olympic games so there was a lot of fighting a lot of controversy uh what do people think about it 10 years later what'd you find out well, we do see that there's a lot of BC residents who look back at the games with fondness. Uh, 68% who think that holding the games was worth it. And there's also a, a high level of support and satisfaction with the facilities uh, that were created because of the games. So I do remember, like you said, Mike, you know, we, if we go back to the couple of months before the actual games began, a, a lot of concerns about security, lots of discussions about where the money was going to be well spent. Uh, whether it was going to snow or not. I mean, it was definitely a situation where a lot of residents were concerned about whether Vancouver was going to be able to actually pull this off. And now, 10 years later, we're still enjoying some of those facilities and seem to be very happy with the fact that the Games were hosted here. Okay, two-thirds of British Columbians roughly saying that they thought this was a positive aspect and a positive experience for the city. Did that surprise you at all, Mario, 10 years later, that the support... That's pretty high support. What do you think of that number? It is high. And, you know, what is interesting is looking back into some of the polling that I uh, was able to conduct uh, before the games, during the games, 
uh, a few months after, uh, the numbers weren't really this high. It was usually around uh, between 55 and 60 percent who said that it was worth it. And we did see a lot of people, especially those who were working in downtown Vancouver, who felt that the games disrupted their whole routine and weren't particularly keen on, on being part of the ceremonies and the festivities that we were seeing in the city. Uh, but now we look back on it, and, and it seems to be a situation where the more time passes, the more British Columbians believe that this was the right course of action. Okay, it was also interesting that you asked people for their opinion on some of the, the legacy projects that we still enjoy after the Olympic Games. Now, people will remember that when the government was trying to sell this idea on the public, yeah, it's going to cost billions of dollars, but guess what? You're going to have lots of great infrastructure that will be here long after the games are over. So the Canada Line, for example, the SkyTrain connection, improvements to the Sea to Sky Highway, those were some of the big ticket items that the government packaged as these are legacy projects that we'll always have after the Olympic Games. What did you find out about that? I mean, you asked people for their opinion on those legacies, right? Yes, uh, there's a high level of satisfaction with this. There's 82% of BC residents who are satisfied with the infrastructure that was left after the Games, the Canada Line, the Cedar Sky Highway. Uh, there are 72% who are satisfied with some of the other projects that many uh, residents of Metro Vancouver still enjoy, such as the Richmond Oval or the Hillcrest Community Centre. And what's interesting to me here is whenever you ask about something that is going to be localized in a specific area, uh, you tend to get a higher level of support or satisfaction from those who use it. But, you know, people in the island, people in northern B.C. or southern B.C., people in the Fraser Valley, they all uh, concur that it was good to have this, and they are satisfied with the fact that we have all of this infrastructure and legacy projects uh, left over 10 years later. Okay, speaking to Mario Canseco from Research Co. and the new survey on uh, public satisfaction with the Olympic Games 10 years to the day after the opening ceremonies. Uh, Mario, it was interesting to see how you were talking to uh, one of the guy who owned the Olympia restaurant in the oh, west yes, yes, in, yes, the, of in the west end of Vancouver. Um, Mosi Mosi Alvand. I remember talking Mosey, to him. Yes. Yeah, this is the guy who got the the, the Olympia restaurant who had been there for forever there in the west end, and the Olympic uh, trademark officials were coming down on him like a ton of bricks saying you can't call your restaurant the olympia restaurant he really fought that didn't he and he ended up winning it's one of those things <laughs> that is quite interesting uh you know there, there's a situation here where when a global uh sporting event takes over your city it tends to have this type of situation i lived through this in mexico when we had uh, the World Cup in 1986, and they had to change the names of the stadiums, and they had to paint over some of the billboards, oh. and it was pretty complicated. So I knew what it, what, what it was going to be like when the Olympics yeah. came here. And, and I think that was one of the reasons also that led to a lot of residents, especially in the Lower Mainland, to be more concerned about the Games. I think many of them thought that the tactics that were being used by the IUC and by Vanok at the time were certainly heavy-handed for a situation that was going to be affecting small businesses, such as the Olympia restaurants. Okay, and the Olympia restaurant is still there, I believe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I just went there a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> so did? Okay. <laughs> okay, is it, what's the pizza like in there? Is it good? It's good. I, I go for the, for the souvlaki, though. It's, souvlaki, it's uh, okay. definitely better. <laughs> okay. okay, I'll have to check that out. Well, good for him. Like, he fought, taking on the IOC? Holy cow. I mean, that, you're talking about uh, picking, uh, picking on someone who's not exactly your own size. But that, that good on him for fighting fighting the IOC. I mean, it's pretty rare that you see someone triumph over them. 
Here's another interesting thing in your poll, I think, and that is asking residents whether we should do it again. Like maybe we should have another Olympic Games in the city of Vancouver and this time go for the Summer Olympic Games. What did you find out there? This one was quite surprising. I thought we were going to get more of a 50-50 split, but it's actually a two-to-one margin. 62% of BC residents saying, yes, let's go for the Summer Olympics, and only 31% who believe that we shouldn't. Uh, understandably so. The, the younger uh, British Columbians are more likely to believe that we should go for the Summer Games. Uh, it would put us in a unique position. I think there's definitely a situation where the eyes of, the, uh, of Europe uh, and of North America, to a lesser extent Asia, were uh, in Vancouver because of the Winter Games. But if we hosted the Summer Games, it means the entire world. It means South American countries that don't participate in winter sports, African nations, other countries that don't really care about the Winter Games. And we're seeing now the IOC moving into a situation that is more of frugality. Let's try to use existing facilities. You know, the next right. uh, three Olympics in the summer are going to be held in places that already have the stadiums, Tokyo, Paris, and Los Angeles. So why not add Vancouver to the mix? Okay, although the, the Summer Olympics are a much bigger enterprise than the Winter Games. Like, I remember that's one of the reasons why the Olympic, the Winter Olympics were sold to British Columbians is kind of a bargain, that it's, it's less expensive than the Summer Games, which are a lot bigger. I'm not sure that Vancouver is big enough to host a Summer Games. Well, summer would be definitely more complicated, but, yeah. you know, there are certain venues that, that could be utilized. Uh, this would be, of course, 10, 12 years down the road. Maybe that sky train is already going to UBC and you can have some of the soccer games or the volleyball there. Uh, there's also talk about maybe doing something with Seattle, having half of the event oh. in Seattle and the other half here in Vancouver. Okay. Uh, but again, it's still years down the road. Uh, but with the IOC moving more into this idea of let's go to a place that has already done this before, yeah. uh, it would put Vancouver in a unique position. Really interesting poll today, Mario. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Anytime. Okay, that's Mario Canseco. He is the president of Research Co., finding that most British Columbians look back fondly on the Olympic Games. Let's quickly check our hot question of the day on Twitter, which is, in your opinion, what kind of impact did the Olympics have on Vancouver? A positive impact, 76% number one response, similar to the findings there that Mario found in his poll. Negative 11% say it was negative. 12% say there was really no impact on the city, but most people saying the Olympics were a positive thing. Let's talk about those uh, anti-pipeline blockades that seem to be springing up every single day now. Yesterday at the B.C. legislature, you had anti-pipeline protesters surround the building and not let people into the legislature on throne speech day. Uh, that blockade has gone away, but new ones just keep popping up, it seems, on a daily basis, as you just heard on your news, Granville Street right now blocked between Georgia and Dunsmuir with another protest. Uh, last night, we saw a shutdown and a blockade at the intersection of Canby and Broadway. That went on for like 16 hours as protesters essentially took over the intersection and lit a fire uh, there. And that one has been cleared away. But as soon as one is cleared away, it seems like another one uh, just pops up. I'm taking a look at a Facebook link right now from a lot of these protest groups with plans to shut down government offices in the city of Victoria this Friday. Very ske uh, detailed schedule and plan. I don't know if they meant to post this on Facebook with public access to it, but I was just looking at it in the last in the commercial break with a very detailed plan to shut down 
dozens of government offices in the city of Vancouver. That's supposed to happen this Friday, according to this planning document they've posted. Meanwhile, we talked about this earlier on the show, and a lot of the callers were saying, why don't the cops move in and arrest some of these people? Well, some arrests are being made on Vancouver Island. They did arrest uh, one man for trying to take down the blockade. It was a Vancouver Island resident was arrested as a resident tried to take down a blockade of the highway. So, you know, you had these blockaders block the highway on the island. Some people not happy about it. They try to take down the blockade. And that's the guy who got arrested. The guy who was trying to take down the, the blockade got arrested. The people who put up the blockade were not arrested. Uh, this seems to be kind of topsy-turvy. What's going on? I mean, shouldn't you be arresting the people blocking the highway, not the people who are trying to unblock it? Premier John Horgan, uh, right, let's have a listen to this. Here is Premier John Horgan speaking to the media about the protests that we saw at the legislature yesterday. These are extraordinary events. Uh, many of you have covered uh, politics and, and the economy in Canada, British Columbia, for a long, long time. I have lived it for a long, long time, and this is unprecedented. That's not to say that we shy away from that and we don't double our resolve to allow peaceful dissent to government policy, but also make sure that there's a complete understanding that you need to allow other people to have their liberty. You need to have allow other people to go about their business in a free and fair way. And I think that message was underscored by the events of yesterday and the coverage, quite frankly, that I thought uh, was exemplary by all of you in this room. This was a difficult day for us here at the legislature, but as you quite rightly say, it's had ramifications right across the country. Okay, as Premier John Horgan speaking a short time ago about the blockades that we saw yesterday at the B.C. legislature. As I mentioned, some people wondering why the police are not being more aggressive in arresting people who are blocking roads, highways, buildings, bridges, railway lines. Here's Horgan talking about that, the police inaction at yesterday's protest at the legislature. Enforcement is in a very difficult position, and I, uh, whether it be here yesterday or at Canby or, or at uh, other points around British Columbia or indeed across Canada, it's very difficult for law enforcement to find that fine line between protecting the rights of people to protest and also protecting the rights of citizens to get on with their lives. And, and I don't have a magic answer to that, and I don't think anyone does. And it, it, quite frankly, if someone says they've got a solution to that, it usually leads down a path that none of us want to go down. Uh, as Premier John Horgan speaking a short time ago. Let's check in now with Cash Heed. He's the former public safety minister, uh, former solicitor general in the province of BC. That makes him the former top cop of the province, former police chief in West Vancouver as well. Cash, it's nice to talk to you again. Good afternoon, Mike. I'm sure you've heard this argument before. Why aren't the cops moving in and clearing these protesters aside? What do you say to that? Well, uh, first of all, I want to tell you that people do have the right to civil, peaceful protest. But when you interfere with the well-being and the nature of people trying to go to and from work or socialize or do whatever in the city of Vancouver and you disrupt that, you've crossed over the line. What has happened here, Michael, is we politicize our police agencies to the extent where they're afraid to actually do what they get paid to do because of the political ramifications. You just have to look at Oppenheimer Park of what's going on there. So when I saw the coverage from yesterday on the legislature, I expected that at the legislature. I'm sure the premier had a say in whether enforcement action was going to be taken along with several others, including the speaker and sergeant at arms. But really what disturbed me more so 
was the fact that the Vancouver police, which is my alma mater for policing, allowed those protesters to stay at Camby and Broadway for over 16 hours. And that really interfered with a lot of people's lives and their well-being here in the city of Vancouver. But when we, we've stepped over the line, we're allowing this to happen. We're not taking enforcement action when required. And I'm not saying hats and bats all the time, but there's ways to deal with this so they don't disrupt people's lives. Yeah, I mean, pro-civil uh, civil disobedience and peaceful protest is one thing. But when you start blocking busy intersections uh, in the city, especially, by the way, Camby and Broadway, uh, just learning today, that's a, a busy ambulance route. So if there is an ambulance emergency, a lot of ambulance drivers will go through that intersection as a, as a key artery on for ambulances. So imagine, you know, they may have been probably ambulances would have to take a detour if they had been planning to go through that intersection. Like, Mike, 10 years ago today, the anniversary of the Olympics, and I was the Solicitor yeah. General at that time, and we were uh, planning how we were going to deal with some of the civil dif- disobedience. And I can tell you, if in fact major intersections were being blocked, the police were going to utilize their powers of arrest and go in and clear those intersections. So we're able to do it if it happened, and we did it a few times 10 years ago, but now we go forward 10 years and we're scared to take action. I, I, you know, again, it's my frustration on police not doing what they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to represent uh, law and order in the communities, and politicians can say what they want. They can say that they're not going to interfere with uh, what the police decisions are, but I'll tell you, they're a major influence as to why the police are showing this inaction at such an important time. Okay, is this a case of the police being uh, afraid to take action, or are they just trying to use some discretion and restraint in the hopes that maybe the blockades will stop. I mean, maybe they think like, well, if you go in there and start dragging people away, you're going to make, you're going to inflame the situation and make it even worse. No, what we've got uh, attuned to, unfortunately, is these civil injunctions with enforcement orders in order for the police to do anything. We have to get away from that, especially in public places like, I say, Camby and Broadway, where, in fact, the police should be in there without having to go to the courts. And I I don't like it when I hear politicians say, well, it's up to the courts, it's up to the courts. No, the enforcement law is up to the police. It's up to them to go in and do what they they get paid to do. Police officers have a discretion that's inherent in their job, built in by the criminal code. However, when you start talking about these major uh, incidents that do take place that are political in nature, uh, the discretion is held by someone else, and usually that's by a political master. Okay, well, what are the rules around going to get a court injunction to clear people aside? Like, for example, in that blockade that you mentioned yesterday that went out for went on for 16 hours at Canby and Broadway, would the police be required to get a court injunction to clear a major intersection like that, or could they just go in? They could just go in. They have the yeah. powers to, because these police, these people are creating what we call mischief, interfering with the well-being of others uh, by disrupting uh, that intersection. They have the powers to do it. When we talk about civil injunctions with enforcement orders, that's usually... Uh, related to, for example, the Port of Vancouver being blocked off where they would get the injunction with an enforcement order or some type of private location where, in fact, uh, they will go for an injunction. And the police will have some representation through the city of Vancouver in the courts, but they will ask for an enforcement order to do it. But when you're talking about public spaces of this nature of Cambian Broadway, you have the power 
and the uh, authority to go in and arrest those individuals and clear them off the streets. Speaking to former Solicitor General Kashid about the anti-pipeline blockades that are that are popping up, do you think that with the police showing so much restraint here, that that actually emboldens these blockaders and they think like, wow, we're just, we can just get away with this. We can do whatever we want. Let's do it again tomorrow. And they are getting away with it. And that's why we see the action down at Granville and Dunsmere, uh, Granville and Smythe at this particular time right now. That's why we'll see the action on roadways, on bridges and other areas, because we are allowing them to embolden themselves in order for them to disrupt society. Yeah, okay, so, well, if you move in right away, though, isn't it going to get nasty? Like, I was just, I was in the middle of the mob yesterday at the B.C. legislature around here, and, man, there's some aggressive-looking people in there, and if you cops come in and start dragging people away, I mean, maybe you risk a a full-scale riot. Well, you you do an assessment on that, and the public order commander that would be in charge of that would do the assessment to ensure that. Michael, there's stages you go through. Number one is having as much intelligence as you can on that particular group that's demonstrating. Number two is you negotiate with them. For example, in the legislature, uh, going back and sitting back and watching it, I wonder where the negotiators were to open up at least a laneway so the demonstrators get there. Uh, picture on TV, they get their action documented, but again, having a laneway uh, where people can go in and out of the legislature, you start to negotiate that. When you start to deal with people that are not going to negotiate uh, with you, you perpetuate your action, you escalate your action with respect to that. You don't want a full-scale riot, so you do whatever you can to mitigate those uh, types of incidents. Well, that kind of occurred to me, too, especially last week when we saw the protesters start camping out on the front steps of the legislature. I mean, that happened a, a week ago. They lit that fire. There were people going home sick from the legislature last week because they couldn't tolerate the wood smoke uh, that was coming into the building from this fire. And it, it occurred to me that maybe that was your opportunity when it was still kind of a small uh, set up, especially with throne speech coming, that you get a plan in place right now. Maybe you put up some barriers to make sure that some of these entranceways are kept clear. And I guess that, I mean, you're a veteran of the, of the legislature buildings. I mean, at the end of the day, is that the responsibility of the speaker and the sergeant at arms to deal, figure that out? It is, but yeah. uh, they won't be the ones that make the ultimate decision. Uh, the premier will be involved in the decision making, I'm sure. Is, uh, you know, Jeff Meggs was involved in the decision making not to take the action. Now, the legislature, you know, again, people must understand uh, there's so many exits and entrances into that, Michael. You know, the tunnels, we know all of that. Uh, where, in fact, you don't have to have that confrontation. So this should have been uh, taken into account in the planning to ensure it happens. I'm sure there's a lot of things, or there ought to be a lot of things that are planned right now, because all indications are these demonstrations and the the activists are going to continue their actions, uh, not only here in British Columbia, but I believe across Canada. And you're starting to see some responses, but we should have planned for it. I absolutely agree. Cash, just as we're speaking, I'm getting a note from the CKNW newsroom right now that Grand, the Granville Street Bridge at this moment is being shut down by protesters. People now that, are turning around on the bridge. Items. I, I would be, now, now, Michael, it, it's great for me to sit back and do it, but i got to tell you, based on my 31 years in policing, I would sit back and I would take some action right away because you want to deal with it 
uh, while you have a lower number of people in that particular area. And you want to make sure, number one, the safety of the uh, the citizens around and the people working in that particular area. Number two, the demonstrators. But again, you want to start to negotiate. You want to start to, to have a rapport with them. So maybe we okay. can open up one lane or two lanes for now. Let's not get people hurt here. Thanks That's for coming what on. That's got to start doing. Thank you for coming on. Take care, Mike. Okay, as Cash Heed, the former Solicitor General. May up my colleague Ed Willis, the fine sports columnist at the province newspaper, standing by here. We're going to take a little trip down memory lane about the, for the 2010 Olympic Games. But just before I go to Ed, let's check in now with uh, the chaos going on in the Granville Street Bridge at this hour. CKNW contributor Claire Allen on the scene. Claire, what's going on? Hey, Mike. Yes, I am on the scene. I am currently standing in the middle of the Granville Street Bridge because wow. it is shut down. There are uh, protesters standing in the middle of uh, Drake and Granville, so the bridge is completely shut down. Right now, there is no southbound traffic, but there is some northbound traffic that is stuck further up the bridge. Earlier on, we saw some cars actually turning around to drive southbound in the northbound lanes. So this is causing major traffic disruptions. Um, there are about 200 protesters who are standing in solidarity with the wow. Wet'suwet'en Nation gathered at the intersection of Drake and Granville. And um, right now we have some speakers, and uh, it seems that the crowd is slowly growing. But I was also on the scene yesterday at Canby and West Broadway, and it seems about the same amount of people right now, around 200 or so. Um, yesterday we didn't know what was going to happen earlier on. In the day, I asked police officers if they planned to shut down that uh, demonstration. They said at the time they had no instruction from from the chief of police to shut it down. And I assume they plan that I assume the same thing will will apply to today's demonstration. There is a police presence, but they are just standing back and watching right now. <laughs> okay, just please just stand there and watch them. You shut the bridge down. What's the how how badly is the traffic tied up down there now? Well, I'm so the bridge I think is the major issue. Right now, Granville Street is shut down pretty much between well the whole entire bridge is shut down and then they have police blockades uh Drake on Drake and Davy. But the bridge is the main issue. I mean, no traffic is getting through on our major bridge and like I said earlier, the ca- the uh, cars and buses that are traveling northbound right now, they're just sitting there, Mike. They can't go anywhere. So actually, some of them have been turning around, and it looks like there's a blockade further up the bridge, too, sort of um, di- stopping people from diverting into one of the exits off the bridge, too. So a major traffic headache, and I would advise anybody on the road that's planning to come downtown today to avoid the Granville Street Bridge and avoid Granville Street... Uh, in downtown Vancouver, period. Just don't go near there. Good advice. Claire, thank you for the update. Thank you, Mike. All right, as Claire Allen, CKNW contributor on the scene of that blockade of the Granville Street Bridge at this hour. The police are there uh, just watching this unfold. I mean, I, I don't know. How long do you keep this? let this go on for? It seems to be happening every day now. So the pressure I get us ramping up for some sort of intervention in there. Make sure you keep it locked right here as we continue to follow uh, the traffic chaos in downtown Vancouver right now. As promised, let's check in with my friend Ed Willis now, the very fine sports columnist at the province newspaper as we take a trip down memory lane in the 2010 Olympics. How you doing, Ed? Good, Mike. How are you? I'm, do- I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. What were you doing 10 years ago today with the uh, Olympics opening up? 
Well, the opening ceremony, so I can't remember what I was writing. I do remember attending the ceremonies and sitting and watching and uh, <clears throat> everything. And I actually had to go back. I wrote a piece today. There's huge gaps. The things I remember, probably the things most people remember, is uh, Katie Lang's rendition of uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. I remember yeah. the, the snafu with the, with the cauldron. I remember that crazy uh, truck, uh, pickup truck ride with Wayne Gretzky in the back. <laughs> Yeah. And then I had a couple of other personal remembrances, but uh, yeah. And then, then the other thing was, uh, the, you know, the death of the Georgian loser that happened earlier today. And it just kind of put a shroud over the whole ceremony and is sitting there thinking, Oh geez, you know, is this going to turn into like a disaster for the city? And it, it, it did, it started off so poorly and then it turned into something else. Yeah, it really did. I remember that very tragic death of that poor Luger there and on the same day as the opening ceremonies. And I remember some people saying, like, ooh, are the games cursed and that kind of thing. That that was very tough. What did you think about the selection of Wayne Gretzky as the final torchbearer there? Because I remember some people saying, like, wait a second, this guy's not from British Columbia. He's from Brantford, Ontario. Why don't we have one of our own guys? Yeah, I had no particular problem with that. I mean, yeah. it, what, you, there's no wrong answer with Wayne, right? It, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it was kind of the way, I mean, they build up to this big ceremony, and then they put him in the pickup truck. And truck and <laughs> that was the crazy part, because I thought the ceremony hit a lot of the right notes uh, yeah. uh, uh, up until then. But uh, no, I had no particular problem with that. No, I mean, I'm a Gretzky fan. Who isn't? So I, I thought it was fine, too. I mean, he's, he's Canada's hero for sure. Uh, what, other, what else sticks out in your mind, Ed, as you look back at the Olympic Games as, as a whole, the whole experience for the city? Yeah, I think it's just the totality of it, Mike, um, is, what, is what it was. I mean, yeah, I, I covered, obviously, you know, games and, you know, in other countries. And it's kind of, you get in this Olympic bubble, but when it's in your hometown, you kind of, you know, you're more of it than in it, uh, you know, and I, I remember like I'd leave my place in North Vancouver and I'd, I'd get on the sea bus every morning to, you know, go and go and cover. And it was each morning, it was like you were embarking on this new adventure. You were going to see yeah. something memorable and, and sometimes quite memorable. And, uh, you know, some of the things I, I, I saw during those 70 days will stick with me but I, I, I when I when I think of the games that's really what I think of is just that oh that overall sense of you know we're all taking place we're all taking part in this grand adventure that's going to you know make a huge impact on our city one of the things I remember was Canada winning that first gold medal on home soil with Alexander Bilodeau there and yeah. you think like a sport like that that I don't know, it wasn't maybe super familiar for a lot of Canadians, certainly not for myself, but man, oh man, was that exciting to see Canada finally break through there and win the gold. Well, you, you, you think of the characters that are like just kind of captured uh, in that moment, in that time, and Bilodeau was certainly one of them, and I think of Mayel Ricker, and I think of John Montgomery, the, the, the skeleton racer, uh, you know, and, 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 and I think of, uh, of uh, Christine Nesbitt, the speed skater. Like Vancouver kind of produced its own group of stars. Yeah. And they really didn't have much of an Olympic career beyond Vancouver. There's obviously some some uh, exceptions, some for uh, the, the great bobsledder principal among them. But but that was kind of the, the thing, and I think that's the other really cool thing about Vancouver is the cast of characters it produced. And and for me, when I when you know when I think of those names, you know, it, it just pops into that time and place, and you know this sort of general feeling of of euphoria that, that, that embraced uh, the city.
Speaking of sports columnist Ed Willis from the uh, Province newspaper, how about Sid the Kid and the Golden Goal? Where does where does that uh, rank in your mind? Well, it was crazy. I mean, the best the, the best script writer would have never even thought of an ending like that because it would have been so hackneyed and cliche. Yeah. But it was just just the way it, it turned out was perfect. You know, and going back over the life of the tournament, right? Like Canada gets off to the rocky start, and there's all this grumbling. And then they find a switch in the quarterfinal game against Russia, and then, you know, and they just take off from there. Uh, just if I can add a personal story, I started way up. There's sort of tiers of uh, uh, in the press tribune, and I, I was up at the top. I was actually not that far from where uh, uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper was sitting with Donald Harper or Donald Harper, Donald Sutherland. And Gretzky, but but as it kind of got down to the third period, and I was facing deadline pressure, I moved down to the media workroom to start crafting my deathless prose. And uh, <laughs> there was a delay in the TV screen and what was going on in the ice. So I actually heard the roar of the crowd like a split second before I saw Crosby's goal on TV. So, yeah, that's that. What? You mean you missed the golden goal? No, I... I, I I, 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 I thought about three heartbeats later than everybody who was in the rank. Like I said, like I'm oh, cutting away, cutting away, and, you know, the puck goes into the corner to a gantle, and all of a sudden I hear this crazy roar, and uh, and, I, and then I looked up, and, yeah, there, there was a shooting oh, the got, puck in the net. I got you. I got you. A little delayed reaction there for a second. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the things that we're hearing from the listeners today, Ed, is as we – share memories of the olympic games 10 years ago today is most people have very positive memories of the experience for the city of vancouver the the games bid was controversial in the run-up to it people some people thought it was too expensive or a misplaced priority but i think most people look back on it now with a great sense of fondness uh and nostalgia and it was a, a real fun event for the city and also put vancouver on the map what are your thoughts there do you think it was a good experience for vancouver overall yeah, I, I've been to a couple of uh, different Olympic cities, like like post-Olympics. Uh, I've been to Athens. I've been to Torino, where the Winter Olympics were, uh, before Vancouver. And and I, I'm sorry, I, I thought our city made out like bandits in terms of the physical legacy that was left behind. I mean, some of some of the the venues in in Athens are like ghost towns. I mean, you think of everything that happened in the Greek economy. That's heartbreaking. Uh, Torino. I mean, you 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 wouldn't know the Olympics were there. I, I haven't been back to Brazil, but I've I've kind of been back to Rio rather since the 2016 games. But I've got I've got a, a family connection there, and, and and it's the same kind of thing. But you look at the impact. Right. The games left on our city. I mean, you, you know what it's like trying to push any kind of capital project through in Vancouver, but all of a sudden we wake up and we've got the Canada line and we've got the improved sea to sky and we've got a convention center. And we've got all these things are really as a direct or indirect result of the Olympics. And I, 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 I don't think that would have happened without 2010. Ed, thanks for sharing your memories. Appreciate it, Mike. I appreciate it. That's uh, too. That's Ed Willis, the uh, fine sports columnist there at the province newspaper. Give him a follow on Twitter there at Willis on sports.